Um, I apologise if I cough a bit, and I apologise to anyone listening on this recording. Um, I'm coming out of a few illnesses in a row, but uh, I started taking vitamins. Thank you very much. I started taking some vitamins. Someone told me that to do that, and the placebo effect started to kick in. So I'm feeling quite good now. Uh, just the old cough. So today we're actually finishing up our series on Joseph. It's good timing because next week's pretty much getting towards Christmas. So um, last week, for those who remember, we left Joseph as about a 30-year-old. He was uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man and trusted advisor. Not a bad position for someone who started life as an agricultural family's errand boy, who then got sold by his own brothers, enslaved, falsely accused of um, having a, a situation with the owner's wife, imprisoned and forgotten about in an Egyptian jail. Now we're returning to him today, but we're jumping forward a whole chunk of chapters from 41 to 50. We'd be bound to miss some important parts of the narrative if we ignore what happened in that time. So in the style of countless American drama series, here's what's happened so far. So if you want to flick to it, and flick through quickly as I go. Um, so going from 41 to 50, it's condensed into hopefully quite a short time. <clears throat> so Pharaoh's dream about the seven fat cows and seven skinny cows came true, just as Joseph, with God's wisdom, interpreted. Egypt enjoyed seven years of abundance with their food production. Joseph made sure that all the cities stored huge quantities of grain. As Genesis 41:49 stated, like the sand in the sea, it was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Of course, after the seven fat years came the seven skinny years, as harsh famine fell over not just Egypt, but, as verse 57 <coughs> says, all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Pharaoh told his people to go to Joseph and obey him. Joseph opened the storehouses and sold the grain to the Egyptians and to those from around the world who came. Chapter 42 sees the return of Jacob and his sons. These guys are struggling with the famine, and Jacob sends his sons off to Egypt to buy grain. By this time, Joseph is approaching 40 and has spent many years away from them. Jacob doesn't send Benjamin, who would who'd be about the same age as me, because he fears that harm might come to him. So he's clearly still struggling with the loss of Joseph, Benjamin's full brother. The other ten brothers head off from Canaan, and, as Joseph's dream from long ago promised, they bowed down to him with faces to the ground in front of him. They didn't recognise him, which isn't surprising, as they'd have given, up, given him up for dead or as a slave long ago. Many years have passed, and Joseph would have been dressed in the appearance of an Egyptian governor. Joseph recognises them, but pretends he doesn't, accusing them of being spies, and threatens to imprison them indefinitely, unless one of them goes back to get Benjamin. After three days, he lets all the others go, except one, to take the grain back. Reuben, clearly not for the first time since they got rid of Joseph, has a go at his younger brothers for not listening to him, when he tried to stop them from getting rid of Joseph. Turning his back on them, Joseph weeps before taking Simeon as his prisoner and sending them on their way with the grain, as well as sneaking their, sil their silver payment back into their sacks. Jacob refuses to send Benjamin, instead leaving Simeon in Egypt. It's only when they run out of grain again that Jacob allows Benjamin to go, Judah guaranteeing his safety. They take double the silver, luxury products from the land like honey, nuts and myrrh, Joseph receives them, prepares a feast for them, has them washed and looked after. He checks about his father, 
weeps privately at the sight of his brother Benjamin and then prepares for a feast for them where, not shown inconsiderable favouritism, he piles Benjamin's plate up with five times as much food as the other brothers. The next morning, Joseph has a silver cup planted in Benjamin's sack as well as returning all their silver again. He sends his steward out to check the sacks after they've gone. Lo and behold, the cup is found. And on their return to Joseph, Joseph demands that Benjamin remain as a slave as punishment. Just trying to keep hold of Benjamin, really. Here, Judah actually steps up and offers himself in the place of Benjamin to fulfill his promise he made to Jacob. Overcome by emotions yet again, clearly Joseph is very much in touch with his emotions. Joseph weeps so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. Pharaoh's household heard about it, and no doubt flocks of birds flew from the trees in shock at the sobs. Joseph reveals his identity to his terrified brothers, and in a scene of utter forgiveness and understanding of God's plans, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no ploughing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it is not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I'll provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and, surprise, surprise, wept. Benjamin embraced him, weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Now that is frankly a wonderful response from Joseph. Pharaoh hears of this and, happy for Joseph, invites Jacob's and his sons to live in the best parts of Egypt. And they return to Jacob with carts for the journey and more bling than you or I could imagine. <laughs> Jacob heads off to Egypt with 66 direct descendants, not including wives of the sons, after God appears to him in a vision, telling him that he would make Jacob into a great nation. Once there, Joseph goes with him to Pharaoh, and they're allowed to settle in the lands of Goshen, away from the more urban Egyptians who, according to the passage, didn't like shepherds. With his family settled and looked after, the passage returns to the effects of the famine. Hardship continues, with Joseph selling grain, first in exchange for cattle and livestock, and then in exchange for the land of the people. However, Joseph then gives seed to the people to sow in exchange for one-fifth of the future crops to be returned to Pharaoh. Jacob lasted 17 more years before dying, his family already larger and wealthier than it ever was before. Just before his death, he blessed Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, but put his right hand on younger sons Ephraim's head to offer him a greater blessing 
much to Joseph's displeasure. We then get a chapter, 49, of Jacob prophesying and speaking over his sons, with enough content for a series in its own right. So I'm not going to go into that now. We then reach chapter 50, as Joseph gains permission to bury his father in Canaan. Fearing that Joseph might hold a grudge, his brothers throw themselves down before him again and offer themselves as slaves. I'm going to finish this nine-chapter wrap-up and extended sermon intro by reading his response, one which is central to the story of Joseph, really. So chapter 49, verse 19 to 21... Oh, sorry, chapter 50, I apologise. Verse 19 to 21 says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So today as we reach the destination part of the journey, I want to make and fill out a few points in the light of Joseph's journey, this godly diversion to his route. Firstly, God knows what he's doing, even if we don't understand it sometimes. Secondly, God's hand can rest on unexpected people and situations in fulfilling his greater plan. And thirdly, God can use these diversions to grow us and prosper us. So, let's look at my first point today. God knows what he's doing, even if we don't understand it sometimes. I think the grammar's terrible, but that was my point. The other night, Anna and I were talking about our degrees. Uh, it's a long time ago now. And we started by saying how we're not really using them. I'm sure we're not the only people in that situation. Despite having had a lot of year, uh, jobs over the years, as you may remember from a long list I gave in a sermon earlier in the year, I realised that I've not had a job that specifically uses the university degree I have in health sciences. That's not really surprising. When I first applied, it's not quite surfing, but it's heading in that direction. When I first applied for university, I actually applied to study physiotherapy. For some reason, despite really hating the idea of the Midlands when I was a kid, I thought it was a terrible place, um, I felt that my first choice should be Coventry. Where did that came from. I also applied to Brunel in London, Brighton, and Kiel, um, but Coventry for me really felt set apart from it. Sadly, I then decided to not bother revising. Um, I never have done, which is a huge character flaw. It wasn't a problem when I was 7 or 11, but by the time I got to 18, it started to catch up with me a bit. I didn't get the grades I needed to study physiotherapy, which was quite tough to get into anyway. Um, however, I chose to phone Coventry University to thank them for offering me a place. And the lady there asked me for, to wait for a minute, and then offered me a spot on health sciences which is fantastic and unexpected. Go forward a couple of years to 2001, at the final Stony Bible Week, I met Anna. I'd seen her and fancied her for the last couple of years at the pre-week. Ah, it's a, it's a true love story, really. Um, but the year before that, I'd actually gone with a girlfriend, and it turns out the year before that, she'd had a boyfriend. So actually, if we'd have tried to sort of meet up with each other, it, it just, we shouldn't have done, and it wouldn't have worked anyway. In fact, my previous girlfriend had invited me on a family holiday that would have taken place during that final stony, but we finished a couple of um, months before, and I went to that stony instead. And there, I met up with Anna. We, uh, we, we fell deeply into quite liking each other 
and, <laughs> and agreed to go out together. Uh, at the time, she was living in Birmingham. She'd just finished university. She's living in Birmingham with her parents. And we were able to see each other every weekend because I was living in Coventry. After I left Coventry University, I moved to Birmingham. And the church there, well, I was able to spend a year doing Frontier Project for the church. I took on responsibilities. I made friends, hosting events, growing my giftings. And it was through that Birmingham church, I was feeling called to Japan and had prophetic words from some of the leaders there um, about going over to Japan. So we did. And uh, to get into Japan, do you know what you need to get a work visa for Japan? A university degree. It doesn't matter which one, just a university degree. So uh, we got a work visa for Japan, and I found, we found ourselves getting involved in a church plant overseas. Something as a kid I'd always hated the idea of. But suddenly it felt like a good idea. Um, getting to develop even more over there. Started learning bass guitar, because our church didn't have a bass guitarist. We had Lena while we were there, and uh, I had a job that actually looks quite good on my CV. Even though I have no real qualifications, um, the experience helps me to get other work and helped, along with nice words from Lucy, where she is, get the job I'm in at the minute. Um, the moral of the story, I guess, is not that being lazy and not revising will work out okay. Um, it's more that my journey has been very different so far to what I expected as a 17-year-old applying for university. Although at times I have wondered what on earth is happening. God's hand was clearly on me throughout these 17 years, and uh, I'm sure it will stay on me. If I'd gotten into Kiel or Brunel to study physiotherapy, it's quite likely my life would be very different right now. I might be richer, or I might be working in a faraway hospital for 18 hours a day um, and be there at this very minute. But it's quite likely I wouldn't be here with Anna and Lena. Going to West Birmingham Family Church with Anna kicked me back into church life after, honestly, drifting for the first couple of years at university. I can link my marriage to Anna, having Lena getting a degree which enabled me to live in Japan, so many major points in my life to not getting onto that course that I thought was the most important thing. My journey has been diverted extremely quickly after I made my initial plans, but God was in charge the whole time, and I think he knows best. Joseph had dreams from God when he was a child. Dreams of his family bound down to him. Not dreams that went down very well among his family, but prophetic dreams nonetheless. Therefore, there must have been times when Joseph didn't understand what God was doing, when he was slumped in a pit, hearing discussions of him being sold into slavery, or when he was rotten in prison, forgotten and ignored. There will be times when we feel forgotten or ignored, like promises over our lives or our well-thought-out plans have been forgotten or that they're rotting. These are times when it's pretty easy to call into question whether God actually said what we thought he said or if he'd actually said it to us at all. Whether we've been pushing in our own strength or going in totally the wrong direction. <coughs> Conversely, it can be fantastic when we're enjoying a period of time when things are clearly going smoothly and we're working out how we expected. <coughs> when we can see our destination getting nearer and these diversions feel more like having to use the hard shoulder for 400 metres rather than the ridiculous diversions that used to the fourth bridge in Scotland we're having to take this week. 
Like when Joseph was being given more and more responsibility for Potiphar, or even more so for Pharaoh. I don't think we need today to look at those times where the journey feels smooth and we see where we're travelling. Instead, I want to offer a few verses for those times when we're travelling through a tunnel or the road meanders away from where we thought we were going or when our journey's fourth bridge is closed. Is God still in control? Is he as lost as us? As confused as us? Surprised when something unexpected happens? Okay, here are some verses. If you want to follow or note or whatever. Jeremiah 17 verse 7 says, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. Proverbs 3 verse 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Psalm 56 verse 3 simply says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Isaiah 43 verse 2 promises, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Psalm 121 verse 3 tells us, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. There are lots more passages, especially in Psalm, that tell us that we can trust God, that he's watching over us and there's nothing that's a surprise for him. We can't expect to understand as much as God does. He stands outside of time. He can see the future. He can see the past and see the present. He's all-knowing. Uncertainty and disappointment can be horrible feelings, but we can trust in an all-knowing and all-powerful God who loves us and has mapped out our lives while we were still in the womb. He took Joseph from Canaan through slavery, wild accusations and prison, and to his destination as a powerful leader who saved thousands from starvation. Moving on to my second point, God's hand can rest on unexpected people and situations in his greater plan, and my grammar's getting no better. Joseph's journey is full of unexpected people making unexpected decisions that further God's plan. From Reuben's sudden intervention, preventing his death at the hand of his brothers, to Potiphar being the kind of master who saw Joseph's potential and was happy to develop his position and skill. We have the cupbearer in prison, who suddenly, at the right time, tells Pharaoh of Joseph's dream-telling power. Then his brother Judah, whose promise to Jacob means that firstly Benjamin can come to Egypt, and secondly means that he offers himself instead of Benjamin, leading to Joseph's emotional reveal. I'd say that to a greater or lesser extent, each of these provided unexpected key points in Joseph's life through which God's plans worked. Their decisions didn't always make the road smooth for Joseph, but referring back to my first point, when we can see the larger picture, we can see that their roles in Joseph's life shows that God has that overarching plan upon Joseph's life. However, I briefly want to focus on one other person before looking at another couple of examples from the scripture. That person is Pharaoh, 
a man who, according to Egyptian people and Egyptian beliefs, was the physical manifestation of the god Horus, son of Re. A man who answered to no one and who exerted absolute power over those who are below him. He owed nothing, didn't need to give favours, show loyalty or win votes to pass laws. His word was absolute. Yet in exchange for Joseph's help, he could just say, ah, oh, thanks a lot for that, have some money. Egypt's God on earth raised him up to one of the highest possible positions in the kingdom. Not just that. We see over those nine chapters that time and time again, Pharaoh is used by God to progress Joseph's journey. He puts Joseph in charge of all the grain storage in the kingdom during the years of abundance and famine. Being in charge of food distribution during famine pushes Joseph to the centre of everything at the time. When Pharaoh hears about Joseph's family, instead of shunning him or worrying about Joseph's work suffering or about Joseph's split loyalties, he opens his arms to the family, inviting them to the land and giving them land, money and wealth. Even when Jacob dies, Pharaoh agrees to allow Joseph to bury his father in Canaan. It shows a leader who totally believes in his man and who has a soft heart towards him. God gave him the dreams. God reminded the cupbearer of Joseph in prison. And God opened Pharaoh's heart to what Joseph had to tell him about his dreams. I'm reminded of two other non-believing rulers in the Bible whom God used as an important part of the winding journey. The first is the Babylonian ruler Nebuchadnezzar, an arrogant and powerful ruler from the Simon Cowell and Kanye West school of self-importance, a man who built a 60-foot-tall golden statue of himself, which everyone had to bow down towards when music played, like some kind of heretical musical bumps. After successfully sieging Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar triumphantly returned home with plunder and handsome and intelligent young noblemen from the city. Among those were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The stories of these guys are pretty familiar for those who went to Sunday school as a child. Daniel in the lion's den. The other three thrown into the fiery furnace for not showing enough love to his golden statue. However, again through dream interpretation, Daniel finds favour with the king and is promoted to a position of importance and of responsibility and fame. Indeed, even the kings that came after him, Belshazzar, who we, say, who we hear clothed Daniel in uh, fine clothes and jewellery, and Darius, who made him one of three highest administrators in the kingdom and planned to make him the numero uno under him, continued that favour. So Daniel, like Joseph before him, prospered in a faraway land and brought honour to God and to his people. The other ruler who I was led to was King Cyrus of Persia. The Israelites at the time were still exiled, and have been for many years since Nebuchadnezzar's triumph. If we go to Ezra chapter 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, 
and may their God be with them. He also provided them with silver and gold, goods, livestock, offerings, and he returned the articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. Now that's crazy. That is God working through someone, despite their background, despite their beliefs and position. 42,360 men, slaves, livestock, allowed to return home with the king's blessing and the plundered treasure. That's unexpected. That's God at work. You can search around and read stories of it today about Christian work blessed or even made possible by the actions of those you'd least expect. God can speak to anyone. He can use anyone on your journey. A sudden pay rise that you weren't expecting that enables you to get away for a few days when a break for your family is really needed. Someone sticking up for you when you're getting verbally assaulted for your belief. Forgiveness, support, love from unexpected people and situations. God doesn't just use holy priests and pious believers to help you along the journey. Indeed, in Jesus' parable of the man who's beaten and left at the side of the road, it's the Samaritan man who stops to help, while the so-called godly men walk by on the other side. So we're nearly done. And my third and final point today is that God can use the diversions and the unexpected journeys to grow us and prosper us. Take a look at Joseph. He could have had a fairly comfortable life with his father and his brothers, albeit with an air of resentment generally hanging in the air towards him. However, God had another plan for his life. It wasn't direct, but then I doubt there are many direct routes from being the second youngest son in a family of shepherds to being lord over all of Egypt. It'd be like me becoming chancellor by wandering up to number 10 and knocking on the door. Without Joseph going through all that he did, he wouldn't have been called to interpret Pharaoh's dreams about the harvest. No one would have stored up all the grain. The results of that famine would have been far more horrendous. Joseph needed to go through each seemingly diverted step of that journey in order for him to be in the right place at the right time to fulfill God's plan for his life and for him to surely save the life of thousands of people. Joseph grew hugely as a man in stature and in wealth, but also in his maturity and understanding of God. As he said to his brothers, he realised that it was God who sent him to Egypt in advance to get into that position to save lives. How can he hold a grudge or hate those who have led him to that position? Now, the rebirth of a butterfly from its cocoon is a popular image. That the butterfly must struggle through that tiny little opening that it's able to make in the tough coating that's formed around it. Those who see the long and arduous struggle of the butterfly can feel compassion and be moved to aid it by carefully cutting at the edges of the opening in order to make it easier for the caterpillar to escape. However, however, as some of you no doubt will have heard, scientists have shown that the struggle is essential for the growth and development of the butterfly, that they need that struggle to be able to fly. Butterflies that are aided in their release can't fly as their wings aren't strong enough. Caterpillars do not become butterflies directly. They do not fall asleep one night and wake up the next ready formed. Their development is diverted as their body alters, as they're entombed and have to break free into their new form. It can sometimes feel that we too have to go through these tough times. We can see our destination, or at least where we need to be, 
However, sometimes we need that period of development, of change and of growth. God knows what the caterpillar must go through to get to, must go through to reach its destination. That went wrong. And he knows it for us too. Joseph's destination was far beyond what he could ever have dreamed of. And he underwent huge changes in his importance and status along the way. Now, going back to me and Anna again, our house situation this year has been confusing, hasn't it, Barry? Yes. yes. <laughs> and we've learned to trust God about it, although that can be very hard. We left our rental accommodation to move in with Barry and Linda after a property that we felt really right about fell through due to mortgage offers from the bank dropping every time we spoke to them. Uh, the lady who was selling was even offering us all kinds of deals and discounts and drops in price and renting it for a while and so on because she really wanted us to be the buyers. <coughs> Confused, we kept searching. First offering on another property, which actually was all right, and then another. Uh, not that we were desperate or anything. Uh, we had an offer accepted on that one, uh, but it fell through after the sellers changed their minds a few weeks later. And then after that, they changed their minds and relisted it again. So. Through this whole time, Anna had felt confused as she was certain God had put the original property on her heart. The property was showing up under offer and had been for months, but not sold. So she contacted the estate agents and within a couple of days, it had fallen through. And we were able to offer again, getting it accepted. We should be moving in in January. Everything's progressing, so hopefully. And it just feels, it's probably not the best house, but it just feels right. And it feels like God's had his hand on it the whole time. In the intervening months, we were able to get a higher mortgage agreement. And we were able to offer a fairer price to the seller. She's a lovely lady. And it's the property we wanted. And shortly after she accepted this offer, I was told I was being made redundant that weekend, in fact. And possibly before Christmas. Again, we felt lost, confused, diverted. But God's hand has been on us. And my redundancy date has been pushed back after completion and give me more time to find a new job. And there's been uh, work possibilities being offered to me and things like that. It's been fantastic, really. But we're still not at our destination. But God has grown our faith and our trust in him through this time. I'm assuming that he hasn't kept us at Baron Linda's all this time just to annoy them. <laughs> Although that's a, a side effect, I'd say. Uh, so I'm looking forward to looking back and seeing some of what God has seen throughout. So, our series on Joseph and the diverted journey reaches its destination. We follow Joseph on his journey from a young man loved by his father. A man who was given dreams by God, who had plans and promises. We heard from Mike about how he was double-crossed, sold into slavery by his own family, as his life took the first unexpected diversions that we read about. We heard of his diligence in serving Potiphar and were reminded that the Lord was with Joseph in all these things. Joseph was patient. He served his master for a decade. He served him faithfully. He understood that God was with him, even if his life wasn't heading in the direction he may have thought it was. We heard of his discipline and of how he dealt with temptation when Potiphar's wife pursued him. A woman who would not have been used to slaves turning her down. Joseph knew that sinning was not against just his master, her and, her and himself, but also against God. Despite all we have heard about Joseph being imprisoned, another huge diversion in his life, 
with promises and dreams left unfinished as he rotted away in prison for years. Even the man he helped forgot about him. We can't imagine how that must have felt. But still Joseph was faithful to God and God's plan continued. And this week, finally, we heard of Joseph reaching his destination, where God fulfills the promises laid out in his life decades before. It wasn't a straight road, and it certainly wasn't all plain sailing. There were tough times, times when any believer would cry out to God, why is this happening? I don't understand. can't see the route ahead of me. Yet, when Joseph finally meets his brothers, revealing himself to them, he is able to forgive them understanding that everything he went through was to place him in that final position where he was able to save thousands from starvation. We have to trust in God. He can see the journey. He can see the destination. And he knows best in our lives.